Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to AVFC Extra, a no-nonsense look at the club we all love. Brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to uh, AVFC Extra. It's the first freshly recorded episode of the new calendar year. And uh, I'm going to say straight off the bat, Dan, we really didn't want to speak about this. We didn't want to speak about this to each other, to anyone. Yeah. To We wanted to not blind ourselves to the reality, but this is escapism. We want to look at football and not think about the coronavirus. But now we have to because Aston Villa and the coronavirus is the big story, Dan. Yeah, I remember saying when we first went into lockdown in March that we were going to use the podcast when football was suspended to be a bit of a, an escapism from real life and talk about silly things and talk about football in a light-hearted manner. And then football returned and we continued that same thing. We cover football in a different way here. We've said it before, don't we? We'll, we'll be a bit silly. We'll be a bit stupid. And we don't really want to talk about COVID and people being ill and, and the, the, the just the negativity that comes with it. But because it affects us and Villa now, we can't hide away from it. We it's, Jan, it's the January transfer window and it feels weird to do a top five players Villa could sign and things like that. It, it just feels inappropriate with the whole first team squad sidelined with it with a serious, serious illness. We do want to do a transfer thing, but it's not yeah, yeah. It's not, not right, now. is it? It's, it's not yeah. the right time. We wanted to kind yeah. of wait to see what would happen with Tottenham. We all kind of knew it would probably be, probably be postponed. The Everton game has been pushed back a day as well. But rather than you and me sat here waffling and trying to guess about who's been infected or what their symptoms might be or what the isolation dates are and, and just basically sitting here and guessing for 20 minutes, we thought, save FC Extra, it's a good opportunity to, to rope in an expert of some kind. So you worked your magic and you've got us a, a professor. Do you want to introduce him? Yeah. Uh, so we wanted to speak today about how an outbreak could occur. So when you listen to this episode, you're not going to find out speculation about who brought the coronavirus to Aston Villa, who's got the worst case of it, because we it's, don't not, know. A great, We'd be it's guessing. not a good conversation to have as well, is it? I, I mean, I wouldn't like anyone speaking about me, and I'm sure yeah. you wouldn't like it about yourself. Um, so we thought the best thing to do would actually go to an expert in the transmission of the virus, someone who's followed it happening in sports, someone who's, who's involved with the response and has been involved with Britain's response to you know, viruses and, and infectious diseases. So today I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Professor Keith Neal, who is a emeritus professor in the epidemiology of infectious diseases at the University of Nottingham. My mind is blown already. This is not someone we usually have on the podcast. <laughs> so why Keith, uh, well, Professor Keith is uh, very good for this podcast is because he's not just a person talking about the virus. He has 30 years of experience controlling infectious diseases such as SARS, and he's been involved in previous winter flu incidents and swine flu response. That's not to say he's been involved in causing it. He's been involved in <laughs> sorting the issue out. Bloody and Keith, the super spreader. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's very familiar, of course, with the current pandemic involving the infamous word COVID-19. So we had to get him on. We had to find someone who can tell us the facts about how a thing can occur. And more importantly, mm. get rid of the blame game because people, when someone's infected, people are like, oh, it come from this in specific incident. We don't know. I mean, it could have come from bad incidents where people are breaking the rules, but just as likely someone going down to the shops, social distancing, yeah. doing all everything, one mishap. 
you're infected. Uh, but Keith, yeah, it was, a, it was an enlightening discussion with him. So we won't waste any more time. We'll get straight into it. So Keith, how are you getting on? I'm fine. I'm back. Having had to take a taste of retirement, volunteer to go back to Public Health England to help sort out this COVID situation. It's been a little busy compared to going out. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all kind of feeling, but you to a much greater extent. I guess you're involved in a lot of kind of the modelling and planning going on right now, maybe? I'm actually more involved. Uh, the first one I went back, it was about stopping outbreaks in the Manchester area where I had previously mm. worked. Then up, then down to Kent to help with their numbers, and now I'm back in the sort of a national team helping everybody else do the job. Perfect, a, a national call up. Then um, the first thing we'll ask you is that a prediction. Actually, um, do you believe that professional sports in the United Kingdom, and especially football in the Premier League, do you think it'll be able to continue as it's going on without a break? We, we've seen matches postponed, COVID outbreaks in squads. It's a different squad each, you know, every eight days it seems like at the moment um including aston villa do you see going on unchanged or will there be a break do you think i think we can make an argument in both directions quite clearly although i live in derby i'm really a cricket fan so the demise of derby to chorley was no doubt a great success the chorley players who are far more likely to enjoy the fa cup than many other players and it gives them a one-off opportunity i think one of the issues is we need probably to, for it to continue more flexibility from the football authorities with accepting there's going to have to be match rescheduling. My understanding is we've slightly constrained by things like the Euros coming up this year, which might cause a problem. But having some of the American sports as just finishing their 2020 season, even six, 10 months later, a bit like the rugby Six Nations, it's not the end of the world if it gets delayed. Or we delay individual matches? I don't think there's a right answer to that question. Obviously, we've seen the outbreak affecting Aston Villa, and this is an Aston Villa podcast, so that's where our focus is obviously going to go, first of all. Um, nine first-team players, 14 total positive tests, if you include the staff members as well, affecting that first-team bubble. This sounds like an obvious question. I'm going to kind of sit here and play my hand, play the card of being on, on the stupid one of the podcast. I'll ask the silly questions. How does an outbreak like that even occur? If you're in a bubble, then somebody actually has to introduce it to into the bubble. Yeah. What we do know is that it's quite clearly football players are fit young men and women for the women's teams. And it may be that not they didn't even have symptoms when they acquired it or they had a, were already infectious pre-symptomatically. And then due to the nature of how football is carrying on, you're, such as in changing rooms and other close contacts, it spreads rapidly. And this is, unfortunately, the new variant seems to be much better at this, of spreading. My guess, and again, this is probably going to make me sound silly, is because football spend most of their time outside and it's supposed to be safer outside, that it's less easy to catch. If one person, one player gets it and he's involved in a training session with a few other players, that's how it would spread. But because it's outside, you would think that they'd get away with it. But it seems that we see these outbreaks in football and there's one or two players get it and they're fine. This is the first time I think we've seen in, in, in the Premier League, at least, where the whole first team squad goes down with it. You feel like surely this would have happened before? I think one of the reasons is by testing people twice a week, you're able to cap potential outbreaks very quickly and isolate mm. those people who might be infectious. There is absolutely no doubt that being outside is a much safer option for a number of reasons. Even when it's cold and horrid weather outside, 
you're, the air movements drift the virus away, which is completely different to inside where the, any virus would stay in place inside the room. Also, you tend to be slightly further distant away. And I would think it's quite practical to make tr outside training even safer in the sense that you turn up changed and you wear your tracksuit, take it off, do your training, put your tracksuit back on, drive home. Because I'm pretty sure most of your players have got cars to drive. If not, they probably have they're, they're probably young enough that their parents could be doing it for them as a household bubble. I think, therefore, I personally, I was very, I was wrote to my MP about the fishing, stopping people going fishing for basically, because it's basically social distancing on steroids. You don't fish near, and many of your listeners will go fishing themselves. And if you get too close, you get tangled lines and they don't make yeah. you very popular. I also think things like golf and tennis could be allowed, but you have to draw the line somewhere. I am personally quite happy to go out walking down the pavement and not worry about walking past somebody. I'm more worried about people taking evasive action and getting and being involved in road traffic accidents, which was highlighted as a problem in New Zealand, where more people came from came to harm from walking in the road than COVID. So it sounds to me then that when players are involved in training on the outside pitches or even in matches, that, that the risky is fairly minimal. So I think what a lot of people think is one to a, team A plays team B, there's transmission during the match where it seems like that is probably the far end of what could happen. We're more looking more locally kind of for an outbreak to occur. I've actually seen work that was commissioned to help the Football League and the FA and it showed that the amount of contact players have with each other in a 90-minute game is under one second per minute, and that's within one metre. And that's actually really very little. I think certain things are a separate issue, like when you form a wall for your free kick, you clearly have to be next to somebody, and you shouldn't really be holding hands or touching where practical. And also, but also, this is a respiratory infection. So if all the players face forward, and I always taught when I play sport to watch the ball, which is so you, if everybody's looking forward, any droplets will go out and it's ten, they're 10 yards away from the ball and the next players. So that really poses very little risk. The other thing you do seem to see, there's a lot of physical hugging and when people score goals, now I get it if you're the 16-year-old on your debut for Tottenham last night on Sunday, you might get be out of it. But I think you see pictures of footballers touching and hugging after activities. That's not necessary. And my view about COVID is really quite strong that we need to remove unnecessary activities. And it's quite and it's like wearing masks in shops. It really doesn't cost you anything. So just do it. On the goal celebration thing, just quickly, uh, would I be right in assuming that because they're from the same bubble and they've all tested negative, that a goal celebration shouldn't matter because they're only celebrating with their own team? Is that fair? Yes and no, because okay. quite oh. clearly you've got nine players in your first team who are now infected. So they're... And we know that although the rate of disease is high and your first squad is probably about 20 odd players, that's 50 mm. percent infected. And that's way above the 5 percent carriage people who are ill at the most in parts of Birmingham. So it is clearly spreading. And the answer is, where is it spreading? And I suspect it's more likely to be in the changing rooms in match days at other times or also coming out and going down the tunnel and places like that rather than the hugging. But you, my view is that 
football, we want it to continue. And if essentially you can reduce the risk by not having the physical contact after scoring a goal. And in a way that can be removed. It's not going to affect the game at all, which mm. majority of people, even those who don't like football, really prefer it to carry on, if not for the people who are, who are fans. These issues, footballing issues anyway, they devolve into tribalism, stuff like transfer fees and even COVID outbreaks. Um, you see in some sections a blame game getting played. With outbreaks such as this, is it pointless just blaming a, a singular person or a singular event and making these assumptions about an outbreak? It doesn't help anyone, does it? I think one of the things is football, because you're testing people twice a week, there's an old adage in epidemiology, if you go looking for things, you find them. So the fact that you had some players test positive, positive and then some more tests positive on the next round of testing three or four days later is not surprising. And unless it's obvious how this occurred, then I think there isn't a blame game because it could be that one of your players is married to a healthcare worker who might have brought it home. Some other, they could have got it shopping or their partner could have got it shopping. And then the, everybody's asymptomatic. You can't blame people. And the thing about regular testing, which is going on at elite sports, is you find these cases and hopefully get people to isolate before it spreads substantially. Now, I think the blame game is probably more attached to what were called the COVID idiots, where people were quite clearly mixing outside their bubble on Christmas Day. And the managers seemed to some of the managers, and I won't name them, but seem to be saying that's OK. And it's not. It sets a bad example. It puts themselves at risk, puts their families at risk and could set up chains of infection that kill other people. In your view, what can the Premier League do to limit outbreaks involving teams? We, we know they test twice a week and I think we, we spoke about them disinfecting the actual football. But what more can be done by the Premier League? Since players are involved in society, aren't they? They're not bubbled oh, yes. away. So no, since, since the pandemic's to... coming through, you have to take them out? No, I think that's slightly going over the top. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a cricket fan mm -hmm. and the cricket bubbles were fundamentally different because if you're playing a three-day match or a five-day match or a series of one-day internationals two or three days apart, they were staying in the bubble of the hotel. And where I go to the gym in Derby, it's right next to Derby Cricket Ground, and it was actually harder to get in and out of that bubble than it would be to walk in and out of an open prison. <laughs> and essentially, once you're in the bubble, then you can move around it. It's almost essentially a large, literally a steel ring of gates and fencing. And we, once you're inside, the journalists tend to stay in one place, I understand, and the teams were somewhere else. But within that bubble, there was a lot of free movement. That's not suitable for football. So you need to adjust how the bubble works. The main thing about you, the bubbles you've got is it's a workplace bubble. And I wouldn't really refer to it as a true bubble, but it's actually a way of identifying people and their close contacts. In a way, if we tested everybody regularly, we'd find a lot more outbreaks very quickly. But I'm not sure it would make a great difference. And I think the only thing the, fo the Football League, I think, could do some things about this. Greater flexibility on match, match day and separation. I think there was reports that one I've, I've been told that one, I think Manchester City blamed their cases on travelling to a hotel in London. Now, 
we know that hotel staff aren't that well paid. The South Africa, the cricket tour to South Africa for the England team was compromised by breakage, breakdown in the bubble in the hotel. None of this greatly surprises me. But the answer is, why were they in a hotel at all? Because they have not travelled back overnight. Clearly, everybody wants a good night's sleep. But that can be managed by separating out the games by another 24 hours. And then they could have travelled back and had a good sleep on the day. Also, if teams test positive, I think there's a good rationale for, for from an epidemiological management. And this is what I often do for outbreaks when I'm working for Public Health England, is you try and work out how it happened. So and you can then share that knowledge with other parts of the football league to see, yes, this is what caused this outbreak. Now, let's put in measures that are practical and deliverable hmm. to prevent it happening again. Yeah, that was kind of my next question, really, because I look at it and think, as a fan of Aston Villa, as a fan of football, once the disease has, has corrupted the squad and they're all they're all out now, and it's affecting games, and obviously the matches aren't the most important thing. It's the health and fitness of the of the players and those around them, the families, the people that work there. Once it's happened, you kind of think, well, what's the point blaming it? We don't know where it's come from. It could have been an innocent trip to the supermarket. It could have been one of the the normal people or the staff at the training ground mixing yeah. with a family member brought it in. It's not one of the players specifically. There's no point looking at it and going, well, this player was partying with somebody else and that might be the reason why because that might not be the, be the reason either. The point is that once it's happened, it's how do you stop it happening again? And that's the I issue. Think, I think if they'd been partying outside the tier restrictions that is an issue i think the football clubs and football itself needs to be tougher on yeah yeah it is an issue yeah. it's compromising the whole sport i'll give you an example from cricket when jeffrey arch joffrey archer took a detour from southampton to his home in the Sussex area and did not take a direct transport and he was censored from the bubble. Now, I know the bubbles are different, but he actually potentially compromised the entire cricket season at top level. Hmm. If, if the players are going to break rules, i.e. national guidelines and national law, then I think there's a good case for sanctions at the individual level, not the clubs, that they get a six-week ban if they're caught breaching COVID because they are compromising their teammates and the whole sport because if this goes on, the something will must be done brigade will be shouting louder and louder. Just in terms of the, the actual virus itself, I don't know whether there's enough data on this yet and whether you've got the, the research to hand or not. Again, possibly a stupid question. Is there any evidence to suggest that a fitter person would suffer from COVID less or recover any quicker than, than the average man on the street, that they're fitter and their bodies are better and they'll combat it more? Or does it, does it not work like that? We, the major risk factor for severe COVID and death and, and is your age. The risk doubles about every seven years of age. Men are probably two, two, two and a half times more at risk of death as, than women, although that's the exact figure is kind. So fit 20, 30-year-olds, they're very unlikely to get bad COVID, even if they've got diabetes, which is possibly, the, there's probably a number of professional footballers who might have type 1 diabetes, but generally they won't have underlying health conditions. Mm. Fortunately, asthma does not, particularly in milder forms, does not seem to increase your risk, unlike other lung damage, because it is, it's not so much a structural problem. I, the average footballer is at really very low risk. My concern is that they can... Every person who is infected and continues to infect any an additional person, then 
then they potentially set up chains of transmission that could put people in hospital or kill them. That's not a blame game because it's sometimes that you may have got this and you give it to your partner and they go and give it to somebody else at their work, even before they're symptomatic. It's really a reflection of the infectivity and the nature of the virus. Is there any suggestion that, you know, player health and fitness can be affected in in the long term after an outbreak? I mean, even if players are asymptomatic or have minor to, you know, average cases of COVID, can their health, their fitness be impacted in any way? I think the answer is we don't know, but it's quite likely it could. I suspect long COVID in very mild asymptomatic cases is very rare, but that's not to say that even fit footballers couldn't suffer from long COVID and put them, put their long-term careers at risk. The other thing is we do know that when you exercise incubating a virus, you can end up having a a longer period of recovery. And in fact, a number of People's professionals' careers in other sports I know of have had their careers almost ended by training too hard whilst having an infectious disease. I think one of the commonest ones that people may be familiar with is glandular fever, which makes you feel can make some people feel rough for weeks and months, and others get it. And most people have probably had it and never realized. And we do know that if you exercise hard on glandular fever, then you will actually have a more protracted recovery. And if you've had gland, you know to have glandular fever, you shouldn't be playing football because it makes your spleen bigger. And you want want to damage it. I know that's not COVID, but I thought I'd get that bit in. In terms of COVID, though, there's, so there's a possibility that because they'll be given fitness regimes to, to those, obviously we don't know the details of which players have got what, whether they're asymptomatic or not, but the ones that are fit enough to continue exercising and working essentially will be told to do so from home. There's a possibility that if they have had effects of COVID, that that exercise and that fitness regime that they're doing for their job could pro- prolong the symptoms and the recovery and potentially have after effects. I think if you're, I think generally when you're sufficiently ill enough to feel ill, you don't, you shouldn't be training. Quite clearly, people get, we know that even something like influenza, people, half the people who get flu don't actually get any symptoms, particularly young, fit people. Yet that probably isn't the problem. It's pushing yourself when you're actually already under the weather and you know that you're ill is probably where the problem exists. Just one more, one more question about Aston Villa's specific outbreak. I think, when people look at outbreaks and infections, they tend to have this idea that once the outbreak has occurred, you're immune, it's fine, problem over, move on. Would that be the case? We, we've asked them, I mean, it can be varying in all sorts, but people would assume that nine players infected, that can't happen again in the future to the club. What we do know is that your chance of getting reinfected with COVID is really quite low, particularly in the first 90 days. And currently, I understand the elite testing program is if you test positive, you don't need another test for 90 days. And that's now being applied elsewhere in the NHS care homes and other environments. That actually means doesn't actually stop you being a contact. If somebody you are in close contact with goes down with COVID, you still need to isolate. So it's not total. Hopefully we'll learn more about this and particularly with vaccination, how much that actually stops you from transmitting it. It's actually, although we've only had this disease now for nearly a year and 
and we've learned an awful lot about it and we've learned that we still don't know an awful lot about it. My final point, I just wanted to move away from, from Villa and football a little bit because obviously, like I said earlier, this is a Villa podcast and it'd be weird to do an episode and not talk about Villa when we've had an outbreak. This is I've always said to you, James, that we always wanted the podcast to be a little bit of a, of a distraction from real life to an extent, but now the thing that we want to escape from has, has affected Aston Villa as well, so we have to talk about it. Um, but I just wanted to mention us, the fans, the normal people, that away from the football club for a moment. How do we keep safe? It's a, it's a dangerous, worrying time at the moment, and it has been for the last year, basically. So what I can think, we do ourselves to, to make sure that we remain safe now? I think the answer is relatively, that is something we do know quite a lot about. And although it's going to sound really stupid, that you catch this disease from an infected person, and an infected person spreads it to other people. So the less people you meet, mm. the less chance there is of you spreading it or catching it. Quite clearly, we know that household transmission is a significant risk, which is why household and other contacts isolate. And if somebody in your household has COVID, it's actually quite difficult to stop. Certainly, avoiding people, not getting too close, wearing your masks in supermarkets and other crowded areas all reduce the risk. I talk about the concept of double masking because not only will the mask you're wearing stop any droplets coming out from you, they also will stop you inhaling droplets from other people that have escaped the mask. And there's good evidence now to suggest that if you acquire a lower dose of COVID virus, which will happen if you wear a mask, you get a milder or even an asymptomatic illness. I think, Keith, thank you so much for your time. It's been one of our most enlightening episodes today. Um, so informative. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. I'm just trying to remember if I knew any couple, somebody I played cricket with is a fan of one of the teams in Birmingham. I can never remember which one. Hopefully the right one. Hopefully the right one, yeah, the one in Claret yeah. Blue, hopefully. Thank you for listening to AVFC Extra, an additional dose of Aston Villa content for you, brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast team. If you enjoyed the episode, please do get in touch with us, get involved in the comment sections, tweet us at Claret Blue Pod, or leave us a review on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. We'll catch you again very soon with some more content. Until then, up the villa. Yeah.